I am, uh, I am indeed privileged to be here today, and uh, I thank you for your confidence in me, and I hope that as we look at the Word of God together today, that God will be pleased at the things we observe together. <clears throat> Pray with me as we begin our time. Our Heavenly Father, we are dependent today on the ministry of the Spirit of God as He ministers to us. We are extremely mindful of the fact that apart from the teaching ministry and the illuminating ministry of the Spirit, the information that we will look at from your word will seem as nothing. But we want for the word of God to have an impact in our life. We want to walk out of this place more edified, more knowledgeable, closer to our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. May our Father, our time be beneficial, for it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. Perhaps you have seen artist renditions of Christ's ministry while he was here on earth. And if you go on the internet and over the years there have been simply an array of pictures an array of portraits that have been painted about the miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ has done, about his ministry in the temple, his ministry with his disciples, and all kinds of things. And while all of those things are helpful, I would like to simply mention that there is a sense in which we are at the mercy of the artist for that particular rendition. Now I am inclined to think that they mean well, and I'm in no way trying to criticize them, but oftentimes the rendition that they are giving is basically out of their own imagination of what they think the situation was like. I will be, uh, I will be candid with you this morning and let you know that while I have seen some movies put out by Hollywood about the Lord Jesus Christ, I am extremely guarded when I watch those movies and the recent ones of the last 20 years I have not even bothered to look at and I'm in no way criticizing you if you have, but there's a sense in which I do not want those movies to give me an impression that, that what they are saying is true, what they are portraying is true, because I have my own imagination, and I don't want them to, if you please, defile my imagination. And all of us have that very same thing when it comes to the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting, is it not, that the New Testament specifically has very little to say about the physical features of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not know how tall he was. We do not know the color of his eyes. We don't know the color of his hair. We don't know his weight, which is not important. But if you take out your driver's license, all of those things seem to be rather important to the government today because they want to be able to see what you look like, what you weigh, where you were born, your date of birth, all of those things. 
We know very little about those things when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are some things that we do know. We know that he was a Jew and not a Gentile. We do know that he was a man and not a woman. We do know that he was sinless and not sinful. But all of that can be wrapped up in the brief little phrase that is found in John chapter 1 verse 14 when it says, the word became flesh. And that basically summarizes it. And the summary is essentially that he became one of us. He became part of the human race. I am inclined, and don't hold me to this, but I am inclined to think that if Jesus Christ were viewed in an audience like this, we wouldn't be able to pick him out. He would simply blend in. He would look like an average individual. He would look like a person that you normally see walking down the street that you probably would not pay any attention to. That is the way he was when he was on earth, living among us. But I would like to suggest to you that all of that changed when he was ascended. When he went back to the presence of his father, everything changed. His time on earth by Bible teachers is often called his humiliation. When he ascended back to the Father, is called his exaltation. And I would like to suggest to you that when he ascended back to the Father, that normal person that would probably not stand out in any crowd suddenly took on a glory suddenly took on a splendor that defies our imagination. In fact, there was only one occasion in the Word of God where briefly His glory was revealed, where that veil was kind of pulled back, and it is called the incident of the transfiguration. And there were just a handful of people, just three disciples there to see it. But now that he's in heaven, now that he's with the Father, what would it be like to see him? And may I ask as well, what is he doing right now? How does he look right now? I would like to suggest that Revelation chapter 1 gives us a clue. And why is Revelation chapter 1 in the Word of God? It answers the questions. What does he look like now? And what is he doing now? And so I want to look at that with you this morning. I believe the first chapter of the book of the Revelation gives us a clue as to all of the things that we could and should expect of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is true that he is the head of the church. The Apostle Paul talks about in his 
that in his letters. But when John presents the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of the Revelation, he gives us, if you please, another glimpse of what the Lord Jesus Christ is currently doing. And so let's look at that. And I am calling that today the vital vision. The vital vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see what he looks like and what he's doing right now. First of all, if you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, just the first phrase. Would you notice that it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation is the Greek word apocalypse. You've probably heard that word tossed around quite a bit. The word apocalypse simply means the unveiling. It means the disclosure. It has the idea of something that was not previously known is now known. It's uncovered, if you please. And I would like to underscore the fact that we do not know this information because we have sought it. We do not know this information because... We, we were seeking it. We wanted to discover it. This is information given to us because God has chosen to let us know about it. But notice as well that it says the revelation or the disclosure of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that little phrase, of Jesus Christ is an interesting one because it can basically mean two things. First of all, it can mean something that is about the Lord Jesus Christ or something that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is information about Christ and it comes from Christ. And it could probably mean both things. So here is a disclosure, something that is revealed to us about Christ and from Christ. But what is it that is about Christ and from Christ? The book was dictated to and written by John the Apostle, probably the apostle that lived the longest of all of the twelve. It was also written by a man who, while in the Gospels, is called the beloved disciple. John's Gospel, when he writes it, he often says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Later on, in the letters that he writes of 1 John, 2nd and 3rd John, he calls himself the elder. Obviously, he's older now. During the times when the Lord Jesus Christ was on earth and John was traveling with him in and around Galilee and Samaria, he was in that local area, but apparently later on, he moved to the area of Asia Minor. And when he is in this Asia Minor area, he becomes acquainted with a series of churches. And that series of churches was a place where he apparently had ministered. We're not certain, but he had apparently ministered and had knowledge of those individual churches. 
But because of his ministry during that particular time, the Roman government apparently exiled him because he became somewhat of a threat as far as his ministry is concerned. The Roman government was extremely hostile toward Christianity during this particular time. And John is suffering the consequence of that hostility because he is exiled on an island called Patmos. He was not there as a sightseer, but what a sight he saw. And let's look at it. As he writes this letter to the seven churches, dictated to him by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, he reveals three things that I think are important for us to notice in this passage. The first thing I think he wants us to be aware of is the position of Christ. The position of Christ. You will notice from the text that starting with verse 9, it talks about how the churches are lampstands. We're not certain exactly what those lampstands look like. But those lampstands are arrayed in kind of a semicircle. And the text of Scripture tells us that Christ is in the middle of those lampstands. Why lampstands? Well, we're guessing at this point, but may I suggest to you that the church is to be the lighthouse. The churches, local churches, are to be places where the message of life goes forth. Churches are to be the place where the truth of God is disseminated. Churches are to be the place where people can find information from God as to how to live, how to cope with life, how to have eternal life, what's going to happen in the future. Because quite frankly, the message of the Word of God is about God to His people. And He gives us this information so that we will know about Him and about ourselves and about that relationship that is between us. So here we have our Lord Jesus Christ positioned in the midst of the people. Look, if you will, and I'm reading from the New American Standard at this point. Verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, and then he lists those churches. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands representing the churches. And now notice verse 13 closely. It says, and in the middle of the lampstands. Where is Christ positioned? He's positioned in the middle of them. He's in the midst of them. He's among them, if you please. But there's something else that the text of Scripture tells us, not in chapter 1, but in the first verse of chapter 2. Would you notice that it says of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the churches. 
the one who walks among the churches. May I suggest to you that our Lord Jesus Christ is the focal point of the churches. That our Lord Jesus Christ is among his people. He's present with them. He is not observing from the outside. He is observing from the inside. There is a sense in which we don't know much about these churches. In fact, the only church that we really know about of these seven churches is the church at Ephesus because the book of Ephesians was written to them. We know from the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul resided in the city of Ephesus for 18 months, teaching them. The rest of the churches, we know nothing about. We don't know who started them. We don't know what their size was. We don't know any of the personalities, any of the influential people in any of those churches. All we know is what we have before us in this text right here. But the point that I want to stress is the position of Christ is that he's in the middle, that he's walking among the churches. I'm going to make a guess about something. And the guess is these were probably small churches. These were probably churches that did not have a lot of influence. They were not real significant. When you compare them to the church at Jerusalem or the church at Rome or the church at Corinth or some of the other churches that have specific longer letters written to them, by comparison, they may have been quite small, quite insignificant from a human perspective. Which leads me to this thought. There's no church, no matter how large, no matter how small, that Christ is not aware of. That Christ is not walking among the people. That Christ is not among the people. Might we think that if we're a small church, Christ is busy somewhere else. That we're basically overlooked. That it really doesn't matter what's going on in our church, in a small church. May I suggest to you that that's simply not true? Christ is keenly aware of what is happening in every single church body where as a group of believers no matter how small, no matter how large, there is no aisle that is too small for him to pass through. There is no chair that is so remote that he cannot sit in it. There is no classroom that is too small for him to visit. There is no platform which is too small for him to occupy. He's part of every church family. Years ago, I read an article which I thought captures this same idea 
listen closely. It was written by a man named A.J. Gordon, who was for many years a pastor in the city of Boston. It was Saturday night. When weary from the work of preparing Sunday's sermon, I fell asleep and a dream came. I was in the pulpit before a full congregation, just ready to begin my sermon, when a stranger entered and passed slowly up the left aisle of the church, looking first to one side and then to the other, as though silently asking with his eyes if someone would give him a seat. He had proceeded nearly halfway up the aisle when a gentleman stepped out and offered him a place in his pew, which he quietly accepted. Expect for the face and the features of the stranger, everything in the scene was distinctly remembered. The number of the pew, the Christian man who offered its hospitality, the exact seat which he occupied. Immediately as I began to preach the sermon, my attention became riveted on the hearer. If I were to avert my eyes away from him, they would just gradually and naturally go back to that same individual until the discourse were ended. To myself, I said, who can that stranger be? And then I mentally resolved to find out by going to him and make his acquaintance as soon as the service should be ended. But after the benediction had been given and the departing congregation filed into the aisle, and before I could reach him, the visitor had left the house. The gentleman with whom he had sat remained behind, however, and approaching him with great eagerness, I asked, can you tell me who that stranger was in your pew this morning? In the most matter-of-fact way, he replied, Why, do you not know the man? It was Jesus of Nazareth. With a sense of keenest disappointment, I said, My dear sir, why did you let him go without introducing me to him? And with the same nonchalant air, the gentleman replied, Oh, do not be troubled. He was here today, and no doubt he will come again. And now came an indescribable rush of emotion as when a strong current is suddenly checked and the stream rolls back upon itself and is choked in its own foam. So intense curiosity, which began by looking at him, now rolled back on me. I begin to ask, what was I preaching on? Was I preaching on some popular theme in order to catch the ear of the public? In what spirit did I preach? Other, other questions began to equally uh, fill my mind. Questions like, what did he think of our sanctuary? What did he think of the gothic arches, the stained glass window, the, past, the costly and powerful organ? Was he impressed with the music, the order of service, the preaching, the worship, our church in general? If only I could have known, was he displeased with anything? 
that he would withhold his feet from yet attending again because of what he had seen or heard. You know, I think that story captures much of what this passage is all about. Christ is among the churches. He's walking among the churches. And how important it is for us to realize that Jesus Christ is not some distant spectator looking in, but he's right here. It has been said that worship and the service of worship is like a drama. God is the audience and we are the performers. And we might ask ourselves the question, what is our singing like? What is our response like when we are praying? What is our conversation like as we interact with each other? God is here. He's looking at all of it. But that leads me to my second point, and the point is the portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are three offices or three titles of our Lord Jesus Christ found in the Word of God. There is prophet, priest, and king. In the past, he is the prophet. In the present, he is the priest. And in the future, he will be the king. And what we have described for us in this particular passage is the glories of the great high priest as he is currently ministering. In fact, some have noticed that the demeanor and the dress of this individual that is described resembles the demeanor and dress of the high priest of the Old Testament. And would you notice that when he describes the Lord Jesus Christ, he does so in such eloquent terms. And when we start with verse 13, we notice that he's not like what we imagined during his time when he was here on earth. Listen again. And in the middle of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man clothed, in a robe reaching down to the feet and a sash across his breast, a golden sash. His head and his hair were light, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze and they glowed like something in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many water. In his right hand, he held the seven stars out of his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. His head and hair, white like wool, speak of his maturity. His eyes, like a flaming fire, speak of his purity. His feet, like burnished bronze, speak of his severity. His voice, like the sound of roaring water, speaks of his authority. His hands, with the seven stars, speaks of his sovereignty. His mouth, with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of it, 
speaks of his accuracy and the countenance of his face shining in all of its brilliance speaks of his clarity. Do we see the Lord Jesus Christ like that today? That's the way John presents him. That's the way he is in all of his glory right now. Right now in heaven. You know, for far too long, we have been content with the childhood couplet. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, looked upon this little child. My friend, nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is not that babe in the manger now. The Lord Jesus Christ is not the lowly Galilean. The Lord Jesus Christ is not the one in shackles before Pilate now. Oh no, the way he is now is described right here in this passage. When he ascended back to the Father, the Father gave him all of the glories that he deserves. And if the Father gave him all those glories, that's what we should do as well. He stands before us today as the mature pure, austere, authoritative, supreme, discerning man of glory. And that's the way we should see him. I suppose the question that I have for each of us here today is, are we content to only see him like this on rare occasions? Or are we content to see him as he really is all the time? as head of the church, as shepherd of the flock, standing among us with the eye of faith, we see him in all of his glory. I cannot help but leave this section, but I want to mention, first of all, the response John has. Did you notice that in verse 17, it says he fell down as a dead man. Do you know that when we see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, arrayed in all of his grandeur, that should be our response? I find it interesting that throughout the Old Testament, specifically in so many of the theophanies, the response when they saw the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, they literally changed their entire disposition. Daniel did. Moses did. Isaiah did. The elders of Israel did. The parents of Samson, Manoah and his wife, they did as well. Everybody was shocked. It wasn't just a casual meeting. It made a difference. And my friend, that's the way Jesus Christ is right now. But finally, what's he doing now? We've seen his position. We've seen his portrait. But what's he doing? What's he doing? What's his purpose? If you read chapter 2 and 3, which is the letter to the individual churches, you cannot help but notice that in every single introductory remark 
our Lord Jesus Christ says, I know your deeds. I know your works. I know what's going on in that church. We might think, oh, we can get away with so much. Oh, we can get away with all kinds of things because we're large or small or maybe in the middle. But Christ says to every single one of these churches, I know what's going on. And you know what he's doing? He's evaluating. He's evaluating every single thing that takes place in every single local congregation. That's what he's doing now. And isn't it interesting that when our Lord Jesus Christ begins to look, he sees things that please him and he sees things that disappoint him. There is only one church of all of these in which there is not a confrontation and says, you need to change that. Isn't it interesting that nothing is hidden from his eyes? Isn't it interesting that nothing escapes his notice? Christ is aware of the good and the bad. He's aware of the right and the wrong. He's aware of the pure and the defiled. With every church, he finds something to commend them for. But no matter how dreadful the situation, no matter how much improvement is needed, when it comes time to confront, he does not miss words. He knows what's going on. I mentioned earlier that it is likely that many of these local bodies are probably small, probably somewhat insignificant. And quite frankly, churches, as you are well aware, are made up of people. Me, you, them, they, whatever. And while we can look at a church family as a whole and ask what's going on, we also have to ask ourselves the question, what's going on individually? What's taking place in each individual life? Uh, Christ listens to every conversation. Christ hears those things that go on in the committee meetings. Christ hears those things that go on in the hallway. Christ hears the things that are taking place when it comes to making a policy, talking about a doctrinal issue, talking about just about everything you can imagine. Christ knows what's happening. I have a final observation, and uh, it's not in the text. And I think the absence of it not being in the text is significant. With everything that is taking place in these churches, and there's a lot of bad things that are taking place in these churches, not once that our Lord Jesus Christ ever say, 
True believers don't do those things. If you were a real, genuine, born-again Christian, you wouldn't behave that way. Guess what? They were behaving that way. And they were born-again Christians. I learned years and years ago that a Christian, a born-again person, is capable of any sin an unbeliever is capable of. Any sin. I find it interesting that in this passage he doesn't once question their salvation. But you know what he does question? Their faithfulness and fellowship with him. And you know what his response is? Repent. Repent. Somehow we think that's just a word that is used when we trust Christ. No, 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 no. John's gospel, written to tell us how to believe, never uses the word repent once. But here when he's writing to born-again believers, and he's confronting the things that they should not be doing, he says, I want you to repent. Take a hard look at yourself and let's get back on the right track. Take a hard look at yourself and embrace that fellowship. How important that is. I confess to you, after being a born-again believer for many, many years, we sometimes let sin just roll off of our back. Oh, it's really not that big of an issue. It's, it's really not that big of a problem. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I know I probably said this years ago when I was still the pastor here, but I can remember a course in seminary where the professor was talking about how schools go liberal. How schools that used to be staunch with their belief and their fidelity and their loyalty to the word of God. How do they start to slip? He made a very interesting comment. And the comment was simply this. Lack of devotional life. Lack of devotional life. And that's true. That's true. The vital vision. Christ is among us. He's walking among us. Christ in all of his splendor. Need to be seen with the eye of faith. And last of all, Christ is evaluating. He's concerned about where you are spiritually. So how great is our Lord Jesus Christ? Let me, if I may, close with this illustration. And this, of course, dates me. And I am speaking sermonically. 
Those of you that have been around for a hundred years, like some of the rest of us have, probably remember a television program called What's My Line? You remember that one? John Daly was the host, and he would have a group of panelists, and they would have a guest that was behind a veil, and this guest would walk in and sign in, and the panelist had to guess who it was, and each of them got a series of questions that they were allowed, and eventually they were supposed to guess who it was. I am imagining that on one of the programs, in walks the guest, and he signs in, unbeknown to the panelists, because they're behind the veil, and he signs in and he writes, the Lord Jesus Christ. The crowd whistles, they clap, they give a hoot and a holler because the Lord Jesus Christ is the guest. The panelists listen on and they say, this is unusual, we've never had any guest like this before. And so the questions begin. First question by the first panelist. Are you the president of a company? Did you start a company? Are you a CEO? Uh, no. No, I really, really am not a CEO. I, I never started a company. In fact, I, I, I just had a small group of people around me and that was it. John Daly said, no, wait a minute, we need to stop here. It is true he never started a company. But more organizations and more companies and more movements have started as a result of this man than any other man that has ever lived. So the next panelist asked the question. And the next panelist asked, are you a writer? Are you an author? Have you written any books? And Jesus Christ says, no, I, I really haven't written any books. It's true, I was quoted. And then John Daly has to stop and say, it, it, it's true, he's never written any books. But there are more books written about him. There are more libraries filled with the books about this individual than any other person that has ever lived on the planet. The next panelist asked the question, are you a uh, songwriter? Are you a singer? And Jesus responds, no, I, I, I'm not a singer. Never wrote a song. John Daly has to interrupt again and say, no, oh, wait a minute. It's true, he's not a singer. But more songs have been written about this man. More songs have been penned about this individual. More people sing of this person's praise than any person that has ever lived on the planet. The last panelist asked the question, are you a philanthropist? Do you give away money? No, I, I, really, I really didn't have much. In fact, I was supported by women most of the time. And I suppose you would call me a homeless individual because I slept out on the stars many a time. Again, John Daly had to pause and say, wait a minute. It's true, 
He never gave any money away. But more money has been contributed to causes because of this man than any other man that has ever lived on the face of the earth. My friend, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his greatness. May the greatness of his present situation be something that we can embrace. Thank you, our Father, that day by day we can look to the word and we can see with clear vision the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep our ears from being deafened by the sounds of the world as they mock and ridicule our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep our eyes from being blinded because we do not see him as he really is. Those, our Heavenly Father, who are born-again Christians, may we know him fully and completely, and may our walk with him be strengthened. Those who have yet to find our Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, may today be the day there's a trust and a reliance in him. For it's in Christ's name we pray these things.